0: Today's episode is with Jack Barsky. Jack Barsky has an incredible story of growing up in Eastern Berlin and ultimately being recruited by the KGB to infiltrate the United States where he lived for a decade right under our noses. I think you're going to really enjoy this incredible interview where we talk about not only his living in the United States under another identity, but the psychological implications and the toll they have taken on him. So after you hear it, tell me what you think. You can always reach out to me on Twitter at unstructured P also on Instagram under the same name or even Facebook. But for now I'll bring you Jack Barsky. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is unstructured where we have dynamic and conversations with some amazing people. Today, I'm super excited to be joined by a former KGB spy. I believe this individual, Jack Barsky, refers to himself as a reformed spy. Is that correct, Jack?
1: Reformed, retired, reformed, correct.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a a fascinating Mm -hmm. juncture. And I want to start out by asking you, as a kid, you're familiar, obviously, how we have James Bond here and our own fantasies of what a spy is like. What did you have in East Germany when you grew up, as an example?
1: I don't remember the names, but we had the equivalent of, uh, of James Bond. Uh, these were, uh, and this is in a rough translation, uh, they were scouts for peace. Uh, they were primarily, and since our dividing line was between East and West Germany, and the primary enemy was West Germany, they were primarily heroes that would operate uh, in the other Germany and, you know, do damage there and, of course, uh, do the right thing. We also had historic figures, probably the most prominent one. Just recently, a book appeared about him, was uh, Richard Sorge, Sorge, Mm. who was an East German, a German journalist who was, I don't know if he was officially a member of the Communist Party, but he operated in Japan and fed Stalin a, a lot of intelligence. And when the Japanese caught him, Stalin denied him and he was executed. Oh, wow. But that guy, that guy if, if Stalin had listened to this guy, uh, he would have been much better prepared for the, uh, for the Eastern Front. Uh, so these were our heroes. And, of course, then there were the, the people that operated underground during Hitler's reign. Mm-hmm. He, and th- that's a historic fact. Uh, most of the folks that operated underground, not only in Germany, but in France and Belgium and so forth, they were all communists. Or at least socialists. They, they were uh, the communists and the socialists were the most the most openly declared enemy of the Nazis. They're brown shirts, right? The Nazis were the brown shirts. Yes, the, the communists were, were usually associated with the color red. Um, so, so we had our um, we had a, a large assortment of heroes to pick from, uh, uh, but the most romantic ones were the, were those that, uh, you know, I could become one of those, you know, the scouts for peace. And were they, was, ro-
0: um, sorry, were they romanticized like uh, James Bond, absolutely. you know, the women oh, and the, yeah. all that?
1: Not as, not as uh, uh, aggressively, but they were romanticized, but, but in a, in, a, in such a way that it seemed very real. Uh, James Bond, you can't take seriously. I mean, even if, <laughs> even if you have a half a brain, you, you know that this this can't all happen to one person. But they were absolutely romanticized, uh, and, and they had sort of superpowers as well. And, you know, there were women involved and all that. There was a series, uh, I think it was called The Iron Visor or something like that. There was a series, and we couldn't wait every Christmas. There, there was a, about an hour and a half movie of an ongoing saga of one of those heroes, and we were all glued to the TV. I mean, there weren't there weren't too many exceptions to that. So, yes, this was part of my ideological preparation.
0: And I wanted to ask that because then I think it's a great juxtaposition of that's what you grew up thinking a spy was or being entertained as such, and what did you find out it actually was?
1: Well, sort of day and night. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I jokingly say the following uh, so you don't uh, when I say jokingly you don't think you know I, sure. I have a- any residual arrogance in me but I do have something in common with James Bond all my three wives were absolutely gorgeous still are but I'm now married to number 3 and uh, I hope she can hear that next door. But (laughs) I got the girl. All right. But, you know, the the serious part of that question says it it, it was literally day and night. Uh, uh, To begin with, I got no weapons training. I got no training in how to defeat a light detector test. Mm. I got got basic operational training in spycraft. Fundamentally, how to operate uh, in enemy territory uh, without getting caught, and how to interact with the center, which is Moscow, uh, and that was it. You know, I I didn't even get cultural psychological training. None of that. Uh, hmm. the, the the Russians decided, and I know I know this by now because I've uh, there's a couple of interviews that uh, were given by. Uh, uh, former heads of uh, Department S, which is within the KGB was the department that ran the illegals. These two former heads uh, gave interviews with regard to what they were looking for in potential candidates. And so they were looking for reasonably well-developed raw material in young men and women that were in their mid to late 20s. Still young enough to, uh, to actually take that risk, but already old enough to take a calculated risk and be mature enough. And I was one of those. You know, I can't, I can't explain this any other way. Nobody ever told me that. But you see, uh, the, the feeling out period when I was first contacted by the KGB, between that time and the, uh, the moment when they actually asked me to join, it, uh, 18 months happened. So I was being very thoroughly examined by the individual who I met with on a regular basis while I was still studying and eventually uh, 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 teaching at university. You know, I
0: hearing that described from you, and you know, from reading your book, I would think it was very difficult to recruit a a good fit, if you will, because. As you put, you have to be young enough to, I hate to say young and dumb, but you kind of do. Yeah, yeah, sure. Young and dumb. You're right. But yet mature enough to where you're kind of tempered, but yet not so mature that you're going to question ideology. It just seems like it would be a very difficult balance
1: uh it it wasn't I, I guarantee you you're right it was a difficult balance. The ideology I did not question when you when you get fed ideological lies from the day you enter kindergarten,
0: sure
1: and uh, from all angles of society all, all the way up to uh uh you know university. That's a baggage that is very difficult to shed.
0: Oh yeah, it's like um, it's like a religion for some people, correct?
1: Yes, no, no, absolutely. It 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 was a religion. We we didn't we didn't have shrines. We uh, we didn't uh, kneel down and prayed in front of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, but they were our secular gods for sure. They they had discovered Marx, Engels, and later on Lenin. Uh, they had discovered. The laws of the world. And you Hmm. see, I was a trained scientist. We also studied scientific socialism in college. Now, this is fundamentally idiotic. It's a, it's a contradiction in terms. But you know, when you're, when you're that far into Uh, this, this ideology, you just don't question. And, you know, the the science of the world was that, you know, communism would take over anyway. So I just wanted to help out and, and accelerate the process.
0: Right. There's, there's a lot of, um, it really sounds good and looks good on paper. I actually was in Cuba in Guantanamo Bay in the late 90s, when they had a very large mass exodus. I don't know if you remember that at all.
1: I'm very familiar with that. I, uh, I just started reading a book written by, and I forgot the, the name of the author who I met, who was CIA uh, working in the Cuban situation. And, and he talks about in the book about that exodus. What, what, a, what a mess that was and, 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 and how badly it spoke for the Castro regime, which, by the way, was to us, while while we were still east germany uh, under communism and the and the soviet union uh, was a shining light and it uh, <laughs> w- w- would lead the way to getting all of uh, south america uh into the, the communist camp exactly uh
0: yes <laughs> there definitely was a pitch and che Guevara I was gonna free and oh uh,
1: no, that that killing bastard well, you know uh, uh, the truth was withheld from us you understand that
0: of course Of course, and that's what I wanted to discuss with you because I didn't know if you would relate to it directly. When I was caring for the migrants, I worked in the camps that we had Mm. because they didn't know. I mean, there's 120,000 of them. Wow. And But they were just amazing people. I mean, so amazing. And I learned a lot of things. Like Number one, I was working with a, a Cuban who was my exact age, only he actually had his degrees. He spoke English fluently. I could barely do any Spanish. And the only difference between him and I is where we were born. And that, you know, that had some real impact on me. But through him, I learned things like if they have a birthday party for one of the children, they have to have multiple birthday parties because if more than five people get together, that's an assembly.
1: Oh, my God. I didn't know that.
0: <laughs> and I didn't know if it was similar in East Germany. They also had spies like every third or fourth house, almost. There was a neighbor that was spying on them.
1: Okay. East Germany, we didn't have the uh, prohibition uh, to assemble um, spies. uh the Stasi which uh, was the East German secret police had 100,000 employees and for each employee there were probably 3 to 5 collaborators so everybody pretty much was spied on and and were, for everybody there was a, a file somewhere in the in their archives when when East Germany uh, fell apart uh, the amount of paper that uh, They were pulling out of these archives that the amount of paper that wasn't destroyed was phenomenal. Now, the spying went so far as to uh, undermining a number of existing churches, and you had pastors— Reporting on their own community—it was that bad. You know that I have to kind of
0: laugh a little. Germans love to document, don't they?
1: Oh, oh, absolutely. But I tell you what—the Russians did too. I, I, we can go back, back to the little, little later.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, I, I, yeah, I understand there was nine volumes on you.
1: Uh, I thought it was seven, and oh. uh, and this came. See the fellow who actually is responsible for me. Single-handedly responsible for me speaking to you uh, here today is uh, Vasily Mitrokin, who who smuggled a whole bunch of information uh, out of the uh, KGB archives because he worked there. Uh, He had not much that he took with him about me, but he apparently uh, saw – Seven thick folders oh, with okay. my, my name written on the back.
0: Did you ever meet him?
1: No. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, one of the reasons w- would have been that he lived in England and, uh, you know, it took the FBI quite a while to to get me out of the secret world and, and make me legal. So, you know, I couldn't travel and he passed away. Right. 2000s, uh, it, I think. yeah so uh that was just not an uh, that was not an idea i also didn't meet his uh his co author because he he wrote two books with a uh british uh historian andrews. I forgot his first name. Uh he's still alive. He would be he would be an interesting person to meet. And by the way, I was initially in in the book, I was uh, that uh, it's a sword and the shield. It's about uh KGB uh uh, activities in espionage. And, uh, you know, when, when the FBI got a hold of that, they they crossed my name out because I was still an active case.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. I, I have a question about that. Um, would you agree that getting caught was the best thing that ever happened to you?
1: Yes. <laughs> and there's not even a close second. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I I would have, if I didn't get caught, I would have lived out my life in the United States as a, you know, upper middle class uh, individual with two children and uh, in a nice little home, but never be able to connect back to my childhood, never be able to travel to Germany meet my old friends, and never be able to talk to interesting people like you. I mean, since I got caught, my life got incredibly interesting, and I always wanted to have an interesting life, and the espionage life was only partially interesting.
0: Yeah, I just can't help but think that, like, living a lie, however well it's going, even though you're, you know, nobody suspects you anything else, you still know, and that has to eat at you.
1: Yeah, it, as, as far as... As deeply as you bury it, I'm still hoping one day to be able to talk to a really, really uh, qualified psychologist uh, about my dichotomous personality my my dual personality that that I had to acquire in order to to operate. you know I, I come to the United states i pretend pretend to be an American. I speak English only and uh, you know, but but when I went back and I did go back uh, well, once every two years for some rest and relaxation and debriefing, I was the German again. Uh, that had an impact on me, and uh, the longer I live, the more I realize that on all that baggage and all that all that secrecy and all that all that you know well, we're talk- secrecy sure. had a, had a phenomenal impact on me and. You know, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and, and tell you something that, that may help some people who are listening. I developed an alcohol dependency. Mm. All right, I, I did. And, and the funny thing is the first time I had a phenomenal amount to drink was the night when I first entered the, the, the United States to Chicago. When, when I went to the hotel and I had bought a, a, a bottle of Johnny Walker Red and I drank half of it. Right. To right. To, to just Ease attention and be able to sleep, and 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 that stuck with me for for a long time. And it's uh, it's a it's a struggle that uh, uh, it's a daily struggle not to succumb to it.
0: Yes. Well, and I can't I can't picture it. I can only intellectually imagine what you went through. But the isolation that you feel or felt, um, it, it had to be profound because. You were literally a fish out of water.
1: All right, so here's the thing. I I, I slowly wandered into this isolation thing uh, and got used to it. It's like you know that f- frog that is in lukewarm water, the slow boil thing. Yeah. Because because I, I uh, actually grew up as an extrovert. You know, I I I was the class clown. I I was the leader of a band uh and you know i played basketball i loved my team i was a, a student leader
0: what instrument uh, did you play in your band sorry
1: uh, guitar cool and and i sang because the other three guys didn't want to we we <laughs> were we were horrible but <laughs> but we made a lot of noise so then i moved from a place where there was a team where there was basket, a team at work and basketball and i moved to berlin and all of a sudden I was by myself mm. uh, be, because all my training was one on one I didn't go to work, and the, the the friends that I acquired were sort of part of work because my one of my tasks was to just get to know st- people that I don't know and make them into friends and and write profiles on them. This is part of was part of the training then. They sent me to Moscow that was probably the worst two years of my life because you know I went to a country where uh, I I didn't speak the language I understood well enough to to get around no friends nobody mm. uh, the only people I met were the people that I was working with so so as I entered the United States it was almost a relief because I could at least speak the language uh, which 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 did not you know, get me out of the lone wolf mentality because the, you know, the first year in the U.S. I, I didn't work, so because I needed to get my documentation uh, to be able to to get a job, so I spent one year living by myself in a hotel. And so what I did in order to not uh, uh, raise any kind of suspicion, I would get up in the morning, leave the hotel at eight o'clock, and don't come back until six. I did whatever, went to the movies, I went to, to explore the city, uh, but but I really didn't have anybody to talk to. There was no provision made for me to have any kind of contact uh, with voice, with, hmm. with, with, with Moscow. The only contact was to, you know, shortwave radio. And And then I worked two years as a bike messenger. Now, that was a group that I couldn't really relate very well to.
0: Which is probably good, though, because as you put it, they didn't care about you either. Everybody was so into their own thing that they wouldn't even notice if you did slip up.
1: Correct. And I, I... But just by sitting and waiting in the office for another delivery and listening to their conversation and then going, uh, you know, befriending one of the dispatchers and going to the racetrack with him and, you know, hearing about sports and the Yankees and the Giants and all that, I learned – the basics of being an american
0: and some of the idioms and and different
1: oh absolutely things. absolutely you this is the kind of stuff you you just can't learn from a, another country and eventually you know um the first the first time i i became a member of a team it was when i had my first job my first professional job as a computer programmer mm-hmm. but i've never lost my lone wolf mentality which is not good because I have been trying my entire life to fix all my own problems, and sometimes you need help.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I did want to follow up on that with the fact that you went into the IT world. You have mentioned that you're very much at core German and have kind of an uh, abrupt or in-your-face first face personality like German <laughs> and Dutch are known for having. Did it help that you are working in the IT world where you had some aspergers type of people who kind of were a little off kilter socially quite often anyway and might oh, have been yeah. abrupt themselves
1: <laughs> i i can talk about this for at least an hour but i give you two <laughs> examples where it wasn't helpful the way i communicated and and where it was i spoke english perfectly. I write it better than most Americans. I still have a residual accent, but that was easily explained. You know, my my mother had a German maiden name. So I I was not aware of my communication style. And I had worked at uh, my company for about three, four years, and I was doing really well. I love programming. And one day, a friend of mine takes me, and I still remember that that day. I, I even remember where I was. It was on the second floor and there was an empty room and he says, Jack, I got to tell you something. And I, I'm not going to curse on, the, <clears throat> um, <laughs> That's fine. on your show. I got to tell you, okay, if I may use a mild curse word, sure. uh, and, you know, he said, you know, everybody thinks you're an asshole. <laughs> and, and I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. So I was trying to be less of an asshole, but I didn't know where this came from. Now here's, here's the flip side of the coin. My first management job, I got hired to fix a situation in a place where I didn't know the people, where I didn't know the technology, I didn't know the city. I was just picked out by a new manager I had and says, Jack, uh, I think you can do this. Come over here and fix this group. Uh, and uh, and in that situation, my direct communication style, my brutal honesty-
0: <laughs> Cleaning
1: house. Uh, did, did very well. And I had three more- in, in succession situations like that, the only problem is once the house was cleaned, mm-hmm. I was not longer needed. I was not longer wanted. So I, 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 I've been telling my wife how this works. You know, I, I used to get this initially. Oh, man, this guy is like a breath of fresh air. And right. then. Then after about a year, year and a half, the air got a little stale. And uh, after three years, it was a foul stench that had to be removed.
0: <laughs> you know what? I, I think you were actually very entrepreneurial in personality. And, and by that, let me explain for a second. I'm guessing that you enjoy creating something and then moving on to the next item because you're intellectually always seeking the next challenge, idea, yeah. etc. But sitting there and actually having to manage what's already existing or what you've created yes. is your status worst quo. nightmare
1: well maybe not the worst uh but status quo yeah i had a i had several interviews uh for for a new job where i got along really really well uh with the uh decision maker and at the end they would say you know what we we don't we need somebody to manage the situation you're a change you're a change agent uh right. you w- you wouldn't work out you you're right i like to go into a situation and fix stuff uh you know uh, i should I should have paid a little more attention to fixing me <laughs>
0: well we all everybody has has things that work and and you had external forces too that's why I I definitely am sympathetic. Obviously, I haven't been through it, but, you know, talking to the folks in Cuba and learning them and in Cuba, too, I had a a individual who was a Marine as a U.S. Marine who's a Russian. So he moved to the States when he was 17, thereabouts, and he had a funny story, which I thought you can relate to. Are you familiar with the United States Marines and basic training? Oh, yeah. And
1: uh, uh, I know I know some I know some Marines. I mean that's good. okay. That's the toughest training that that I could imagine. <laughs>
0: well, they have something about their their foot lockers, as in their foot lockers had better be secure. Or I mean, it, it's one of the biggest crimes you can do. All hell will break loose. And he talked about how he left his foot locker unlocked in basic training. And the drill sergeant just lit him up in front of you know, the whole platoon. What is wrong with you? And, and screaming at him. And he had to explain that it was a combination lock and he didn't know how to work it. <laughs> okay. And he described the drill sergeant having to then bend down on the floor and go, you go left, you go right, you go <laughs> left, after screaming at him up and down. And that was... Made me think of your twist off bottle cap story.
1: Yeah, <laughs> th- th- that's another moment that um, I remember very vividly. Uh, I-, I don't. I-, I believe, and you know, sometimes memories are false, but I believe I sat at a table with four chairs, and and I uh, I can picture exactly where I sat and and how the waiter c- came up when I waved him over, and I says, "I need a bottle opener," and. He, he was just, he looked at me like, you know, you were know, making, trying to make fun of me. And he took that bottle and slowly twisted the cap off. <laughs> With a flourish. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe he was playing along or maybe he was thinking, what an idiot. You know, like maybe they don't have bottle, you know, twist off bottles where he came from. And, and I spoke already like 90% clean English at the time.
0: Right. Now, what I wanted to ask you is, were there any other instances like that that tripped you up? Because I know that one spy got caught because he was holding flowers upside down when walking oh, at his side.
1: No, um, I can't recall any similar situation, but I... I can I could tell you a number of uh situations that could have tripped me up but you know nobody ever paid attention like you you try to make me play in a softball game and I look like an idiot hmm. I can't I can't swing a bat right. now you you put a soccer ball in front of my right foot and watch me kick their ball because I just can't help myself. <laughs> so, so, so this is all very deep in the DNA. Um, this this would have to require somebody with phenomenally sharp skills to observe. Uh, but I, uh, I can't recall offhand now another situation that made me look that stupid. Oh, maybe here's one. So I come to the U.S. and I, I live here for about three months and I'm going out and uh, I meet a girl and we have dinner and I paid for the dinner and after I paid for the dinner uh, she she asked us so so what do you do for a living and I says oh no I'm unemployed and I I say I said this with uh, uh, a sort of uh, pride. No, insouciance, that's the word that comes oh. to mind. Okay. Uh, like, you know, like, I don't really care. Gotcha. And she went like, oh, no, oh, that's ter- <laughs> terrible, I, I should have known, I would have paid for the dinner. I, I didn't quite relate to what unemployment means. I know now. <laughs> that's interesting. Did, did some
0: of that help culminate or change your... Uh- Opinion over time, because that right there would imply something very different than the greedy capitalist.
1: Well, no, you know, I I had to learn viscerally what unemployment is, mm-hmm. uh, and and I, and I to me it was just something theoretical. Now, now what changed my mind of the greedy capitalist is the way uh, my. First company treated me, uh, and that's on the record, so I might as well mention the name of the company. It was MetLife mm-hmm. at, at the time, a very, very paternalistic mutual insurance company. But they were so nice to their employees. I mean, they were really nice to it. We had free lunch, and, and they they paid well, and the atmosphere was good. And that st- started changing my hardcore attitude towards capitalism. Yeah,
0: I talked to um, different people behind the Iron Curtain, like uh, Otakara Klecki, a former guest. And she had talked about how they had made up jobs. Like she knew this. Um, she had a friend who her only job was at a um, is kind of like a, a carpet factory, a blanket factory, something like that. And her job was to just turn it over on the loom every half hour or so. And she loved the job because she just sit there smoking and joking with all of her friends. But there was a lot of, I hate to say, BS jobs like that. Did you have that kind of situation with the, you know, everybody employed?
1: Oh, we did. And uh, I I have uh, firsthand experience. Uh, We, uh, my generation and a year after us we're in, a, in an experimental kind of program in high school where they uh, uh, the communist leaders thought the, you know the future leaders of the country should be members of the working class and should learn how you know what it's like to be uh, you know working class so we went to school for 3 weeks out of the month and then we went to a factory in this case it was a large combined works where they uh, you know where they liquefied coal and generated electricity and so forth a dirty old smelling big big plant and we learned to be machinists. And I swear to God, at least half the guys who were standing around there did nothing, mm. nothing, because all it took these these things were fully automated. All it all it took to to supervise what was going on there was reading the gauges and making sure that everything's in balance. <laughs> we we we, we uh, eventually got so bored. We, there was also shift involved, but we we got so bored in the summertime. Three or four of us just uh, snuck out of the plant and hung out in the woods all day. And, and nobody noticed that we weren't there.
0: They probably were happy to have fewer to manage.
1: Well, we, <laughs> we learned that you really don't have to work hard to, to get paid and, and, and exist in that country. Now, that, that, that did not apply to everybody because uh, as weak as the East German economy was, it wasn't. As bad as some others, that means somebody must have produced something.
0: Wow i, I did, I'm so blown away by that. And you know, I, I've spent a little time in the army, and that's why I was in Cuba. But I was out at Fort Irwin, and we used to train as the quote op four because it was sort of like a desert training. But we studied Soviet tactics and I, I learned different things in there. Like one, the Soviet tactics were phenomenal, probably better than anything in the world, except they had such a dependency on a chain of command that they would be paralyzed on the field.
1: Oh, did they was part of that tactic also to shoot people in the back? <laughs>
0: Just, I'm I'm guessing that's possible.
1: Well they did that in World War II, you know that.
0: Well, yeah, I believe Stalin killed more people than Hitler.
1: Yes, but he, he this he's the thing. The um when when they were fighting the Nazis in the open field and 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 there was just no turning back. If you tur- if you turned back, you would be killed by your own people. Mm. That that's how how that's how heroism was forced. I was just like being sarcastic here. They probably changed that. Uh, chain of command? Absolutely. that That is how, that is how su- the old men that were, uh, the head of the Politburo, the head of state, effectively, who, who couldn't stand straight anymore were still in power. That's why Stalin stayed in power for t- so long, even though uh, a lot of people knew that they were a, Either evil or be totally dysfunctional. That's th- that is the uh, extreme hierarchical system where you are not allowed to think for yourself as uh, if it goes against the mainstream thinking. Yeah, and
0: ironically, what I learned from that is that was the most important difference. You know, in terms of the battle, there, there was two. That was the first one, and the advantage tactics-wise that the U.S. has is it's a much looser command. It's kind of like, um, I want this objective. I don't really care how you get there, but I kind yeah. of want that stuff there. And and that leaves a lot of choices to people down below.
1: Yeah, that's the way I used to manage. That's the way I used to manage in corporate America. I let I told my direct reports, well, this is what the marching orders. This is how much resources you have. Go ahead and do it. Uh, not everybody appreciated that. Uh, the ones that don't appreciate uh, that kind of leadership style are the micromanaging, uh, insecure individuals who know that they don't belong where they are. Mm, that that makes sense. And
0: you kind of are contrary to the Soviet discipline because you were sort of given that leash. Yes, right?
1: I I had to be contrary. I was I was given the freedom. I <laughs> I made. I made ninety percent of the decisions that uh, that uh, Im- impacted my life as an agent myself. There, there was just no other way. I had to make decisions, and I I couldn't ask my masters. And e- even if I did, through you know uh, communication via secret writing in the mail. It just took way too long to get an answer back, and and they didn't know how to answer most of this stuff anyway. Here's this one example, and I think I put this in the book. They did, they they didn't have a clue what it's like to live in the United States, and and the, uh, I still remember this is a, one of those moments when one of my handlers told me, you know, Jack, and I was and they, and they called me Dieter then. Mm-hmm. Dita, uh, there's one thing I got to tell you: when you get to New York, you got to stay away from the Jews. <laughs> That is laugh out loud, funny, right? So so that means they they really didn't know what they were doing. And this is uh sort of when you think about it, like almost like the Keystone cops of, of espionage. I am not saying the KGB was totally ineffectual. Uh, But most of their successes, particularly at the time that uh, when I was operating, uh, were achieved by walk-ins, by defectors from the United States or other countries, for that matter. The illegals program was totally ineffective.
0: Really? I wanted to ask, have you had an opportunity to ever visit or speak with your counterpart? Uh, Who's a counterpart? Uh, Well, I guess not counterpart, but um, people who did your same job.
1: Okay, yeah. I met one. Uh, and that was uh, that was very interesting. So I, I'm i in Berlin, Germany, and I visit – they have a spy museum there. Mm-hmm. And I visit the museum together with – oh, they had just opened – together with my son and his wife. And we're wandering around, and this is guy. And there's only a video of this guy who says, you know, I was an illegal agent in the United States. Mm. And I'm saying to my son, I don't believe this guy. <laughs> so, th- But my son then goes and, and looks up somebody – in the office, and asked that, that somebody, uh, "Would you like to meet another one of those originals?" And they come out, and uh, I introduce myself, and so we established a relationship. And the next time I was in Berlin, I was in, introduced to uh, an, by the name of Wolffart. I, I won't give the last name because he is uh, he's still semi-secret. He he uh, he, do- he huh. doesn't want to be out in public very much. And Wolffart went to the United States, and he lived. <laughs> He lived in New York City with his wife. He actually was able to take his wife mm. in a place called Astoria, which was only about five miles of the place where I lived, which was called is called Woodside. We didn't mm. know about each other. He came about five years after me, and his only task was— to just live in the United States. Really? And I said to him, you know you know what? I hate you because I had many other things to do.
0: <laughs> I wanted to ask you about some of those. I know you wrote about flying to California and the professor yeah. that you, you looked up. But I mean, obviously, without revealing things that may be secret, can you give some general or you know, take out the names or whatever you have to do. I'd be very curious some of the other things that maybe you didn't list.
1: Uh, quite frankly, there are none. Simply there weren't there weren't too many of those tasks. And you see, the one thing that the KGB was really really good at was compartmentalization.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I was given just enough information to be able to operate, which. It's not always a good idea because if you if you if you don't uh, a fr- you don't have a frame of reference. Very often you wind up making the wrong decision. True. And, and here's another thing that I uh, I found out. I met a fellow who lives in the United States now. He he was a member of the FSB. Mm. You know, we know you know what the FSB is.
0: That's the uh, new version of the KGB, right? Or-
1: sort of. Yeah. It's uh, it's correct. Uh, and, you know, the FSB operates very similar to how the KGB operates because they were trained by KGB. So, you know, what do you expect? And he told me with reasonable certainty that there may have been only one or two people in, in all of the KGB that really knew my identity and most likely the individual who, who made the high-level decisions about, you know, where to send me what to do and what to ask me to do probably didn't know me by face. Wow. It seems wasteful. Yeah, but it's – that's how you keep a secret.
0: Well, yeah, I mean the only way to keep a secret is if it's two people and one's dead. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, but – okay, but – you know, in the, in the old days of resistance in, uh, in, in the Nazi times, the the communist cells were organized in threes – and there was one liaison uh, that uh, w- was a liaison to another group of three. so it would, would have been very difficult to just like erase the entire organization and, and this sure. this is how this is how communists uh, used to operate and and clearly it is significantly superior to the way American intelligence works because you you had leakers at the highest level.
0: Well, oh, that's true I mean I'm, I'm not um, praising the internals uh, CIA has some pretty embarrassing history themselves
1: sure but we're talking about nowadays i mean there's leaks coming not as much anymore out of the white house how is that you know that's just not acceptable especially when it comes to matters of national security and and that's one of the reasons i can't there's a lot of things i can't tell you and what i what i have found out about my own existence and how the KGB operated is through, uh, you know, uh, people like pe- folks from the FBI that I know, uh, <laughs> my 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 new friend Wolfhard, and newspaper interviews. I myself was pretty dumb and blind. Sure, and
0: and again, I don't blame you for that. I was just thinking that. The expense of your training and everything oh, yeah. else to not really use you that much. That's when I what I was saying when I'm like, it seems almost wasteful.
1: Well, OK, so so here's I don't know if uh, if it, I made it clear in the book. They had a really, really good plan. But unfortunately, or fortunately, with everything that happened in communism, we all, always had a good plan and then we failed to execute. yeah. <laughs> So here's the plan. I'm being sent to the United States. I acquire legal documents, Mm -hmm. uh, including a passport. Especially the passport. That was very significant. That was the crown jewel. And then I would have moved to, let's say, Switzerland or Austria. And then the plan was to set me up with a company and funnel a lot of money into that company.
0: And you become Elon Musk or somebody.
1: I become I become reasonably wealthy. Yeah. I moved back to the United States. At that point I don't have to tell anybody how exactly I acquired my wealth. I just have it because I wasn't a successful businessman in the US. And at that point I, I could have knocked to pretty much the doors of any country club and say, hey, you want to let me in? And True. that's when that's when when I would have been able to do some damage. But but because of the uh, failure to acquire the passport, that option, that flexibility, didn't, did not exist. I, mean, I had to, I had to work my way up. You know, twenty five years later, <laughs> I was actually positioned to do damage. But you know, I had resigned uh, a long time before.
0: Wow, it sounds like there's a quote about war. That war is long periods of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror. Would that be similar to what you had? No, no.
1: Okay. That, that's a, yeah, laconic. No, I'm sorry. No, that's fine. <laughs> no. Now I maybe I can maybe we will draw sort of a parallel. There were long periods of waiting, and mm-hmm. then there were short bursts of action. But you know, when you say war, that uh, that's too dramatic.
0: Okay. Well, a lot of it seems like it was boring, and I know you've described how it got to the point where the spy craft was tedious because it interrupted your day job.
1: It did. And <laughs> I'm, I'm not making it up. It did because, you know, uh, uh, the, the computer programmer job was rather demanding. And uh, so I had to do the, some of the things that had to do with communication, such as uh, composing letters and putting secret lighting, writing on them, and then making sure that I'm not being followed. Writing a message took uh, and, and mailing it took about six hours So that was now moved to Saturday So I didn't even have a social life And they did not understand this Apparently there was no other choice This is what they instinctively knew And there were a couple of remarks that I heard That indicated that they thought The shelf life of somebody like me Would have been 10 to 12 years Because eventually you become The other person
0: Ah, okay so they assumed that you would corrupt over time.
1: Yes they did. Now what they didn't know that that the corruption process was accelerated by having a baby girl in this country.
0: Sure, sure. And I know that that, that definitely changed, it everything. changed
1: everything. You know, she is the other person who is responsible for me talking to you. <laughs> she she you know there's two pivot points. It's her and then it's the Matrokin fellow who you know brought the information about me to this country when I was then uh, apprehended. I can't help but
0: wonder, too, though, if the timing of world history didn't factor in. I mean, the fall of the Soviet Union had to to have an effect. And I guess I'm asking, do you think it would have been as easy to transition into being a full American if instead it was, you know, two thousand? If it was actually
1: 1980. Okay, so you 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 are making a good point. Uh, my my staying here was not influenced by by the events simply because I had no clue what was coming. I uh, I defied the KGB. I defied their order to uh, return back home in 1988. The Berlin Wall fell in 1989. Uh, I. I as well as the entire CIA had no clue that that was coming. So so that's number one number two I had no idea that the Soviet Union was go- was going to collapse too. However and here's the I think here's the real question that you ask if the Soviet Union and East Germany had still been stable countries uh they may have had more resources to find out what the heck happened to me and possibly, you know, uh, retaliate. They Mm -hmm. were way way too busy to figure out what to do with the rest of their lives.
0: Right. And I was wondering if your welcome may have not been as warm if it was in the middle of the Cold War versus kind of after on this side.
1: That is probably wrong uh, because defectors have always been welcomed by either side. They are too valuable okay. based on, based on what they know and what they can share with, uh, with the country that, uh, that they're defecting to. Uh, now, unless of course you're dealing with a killer or, or somebody who has committed serious crimes, I don't know how that would work, but, but I give you an example of a defector uh, who I guarantee you was responsible for uh, a number of killings and the, and, uh, he, he, he came to the United States as, as a, defector uh, nine, maybe 10 15 years ago i won't name his name in public mm-hmm. he, but but he's known uh, he's known he's he's out in public he is a he's an advisor to the Washington DC spy museum but based on the position that he had in the KGB he must have signed death sentences there's no way he, that uh, that didn't happen and he's he, he's still welcome here simply because he brought a wealth of information with him mm, okay that, that's how it ro- works in the spy world you know you you tell me what you know and i treat you really nice you know and some of the defectors uh were treated uh, a lot better than me they they were you know they would you know they would uh, wind up in the witness protection program uh, with a nice uh you know piece of chunk of money to start over mm-hmm. uh, i i just was allowed to continue my career
0: <laughs> perhaps because they didn't have you do enough tasks that they,
1: um... No, it, it, the rationale, and I understand that they 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 literally didn't want to disrupt my family. I was so Americanized, Americanized <laughs> with two kids and a wife, and, and and a mortgage and a decent job, and on and on to take me. Out of the place where I lived and put me someplace in Utah with my children, I think would have done a lot of damage to the kids.
0: Oh yeah, well, I mean, you—you'd already done the job (laughs) that they would be doing with the witness protection program or whatever. You kind of did it to
1: yourself. Yeah, yes, (laughs) I—I—that's a good point. (laughs) Without much help, you know,
0: right? So it's like, well, it ain't broken. Uh, (laughs) We'll just we'll just leave it there. I want to reach back. Why did the KGB? recruit you versus um, the Stasi, uh, Stasi recruit you? I,
1: see, uh, initially when, when I first came out in public, I, I I guessed that my first recruiter who spoke with me only twice was Stasi because he was German. Uh, I since uh, had developed some reason to believe that the first guy was a German collaborator for the KGB. And, and I tell you who – Planted that in me, and uh, I don't think that information made made it into the books, uh, into the book. Um, maybe it did, but anyway, my, my best German friend happened to be uh, he joined the Stasi, and he he became a major in, in charge of the forgery department, and and he pretty much knew that. The Stasi did not recruit on on behalf of the KGB, and he indicated that he may have had something to do with uh, uh, with me being recruited. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, uh, because he was he was approached earlier than me. He was he was already a member of the uh, the Communist Party at the age of eighteen, and I joined when I was twenty. So he was a uh, he was an early target. Um, and and interesting situation he uh, a year ago gave his first interview a radio interview and uh, it's really fascinating what he observed particularly in the last weeks months uh, of east germany and how everybody was flying you know go, running for the hills
0: yeah that had to be just i i can't even imagine the transition had to be so crazy i mean it, oh
1: yeah think about uh so uh, you sort of knew this coming, but I I know the I know the mentality because I was part of that thinking. Uh, you you always knew that you know the communist system was better. You you wouldn't let go of that belief. You were just hoping and praying for a better set of leaders because the leaders all suck. Right. And and so then one day the the option of of a better set of leaders had disappeared, and now. If you're, you know, middle-aged in your mid-40s, maybe even 50, you realize that, you know, the, the cause you had joined, the, the life you had lived was either wrong or you're being wronged in the worst way. Mm-hmm. So either way, it was like being hit over the head by with a two-by-four. So oh, sure. in, in that respect, I, I, I was lucky because I decontaminated very slowly.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the cognitive dissonance. It's kind of like getting um yeah. a, a Democrats or Republicans to agree that the other one is right. <laughs> That's a good
1: one. <laughs> yeah, that that would there would be mass suicide <laughs>
0: exactly I mean you know, either way you go it's like and the more you information you give the more they harden this is both sides
1: oh yeah. Yeah, and it's it's group think and what they call the echo chamber that you be, believe in what you're saying and whatever else who's in that chamber is, say, chamber is saying and you you closing your, your 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 ears and uh, that's just dangerous and and that's fundamentally the danger of ideology because that's what it is ideology is is is, is uh, uh, hanging on to a belief without thinking
0: and yeah on that note because we're heading that way I kind of wanted to close out and get your feelings on there's a real, shall we say, new embrace of socialism in the United States, or a desire for that. Have you noticed that, and do you have any thoughts?
1: How can you not notice that? Uh, it's uh, frightening because uh, it, this is based on what, this is based on the existence of a foundation in history, because here's, a, here's the bottom line. There has never been a communist country ever in history because they they may have started out with a communist uh, ideology, but they all turned into dictatorships. Now let's go to the softer side, uh, socialism. Here's my here's my problem with that. And trust me, uh, I I don't believe you know ca- the capitalist United States is nirvana, but sure. but socialism if if you requires concentration of power near the top mm-hmm. government so we are talking about collectivism and 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 this is this is the problem in history collectivism eventually will turn into a dictatorship because it needs to defend itself and and it's because it wants to make decisions on you, on your behalf now there are some people who won't like those decisions Therefore, you start defending yourself and you will be attacked. Look at what's happening in France. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 so it
0: in Hong Kong.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. And, you know, there are more there are more uh, patriotic Americans in Hong Kong than uh Possibly in uh, San Francisco. Uh, don't quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know what I'm saying. It's uh, uh, it's sure. it, it's a shame. And but but the young people don't really know the the, uh, um, the the socialist slash communist ideal is is so wonderfully attractive. Why can't we all get along? I'm working with a fellow right now who is writing a book, and he's 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 incredibly naive, and I won't uh, – Tell his name, but he—he's a wonderful guy, incredibly naive, and 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 the fundamental idea that he's carrying with him is, you know, most everybody on the planet agrees to the golden that the golden rule is a good idea. So why in the world have we not been able to achieve peace? Uh, and and that is where we, as human beings, are just naive, and we just want to believe that we can all get along it ain't gonna work this getting along needs to be managed and it needs to be managed in such a way that power is distributed and this is where you know two thousand years ago the the romans figured this out pretty well and then our founding fathers did that too and we're getting close to losing this and and I, i i think that that would be the end of the united states as we know it
0: like the roman empire right <laughs>
1: uh, well yeah and, and we we also see some signs of moral decay now not everybody would agree with that statement but when any anything and everything goes goes and, uh, there is no uh, moral glue that ki- that holds society together that's that's what i call moral decay i'm not judging that's not the point I understand. Uh, if it's if it feels good and i do it as long as i'm not hurting somebody else how do you know you're not hurting somebody else uh, how do you know not uh, that you're not influencing somebody to do stuff that is really not good for them you know we're talking about legalization of drugs and all this stuff you know this is all very complicated and you know we can only scratch the surface and i'm, I'm not a scholar and uh, but but i i think the trend the trend is very dangerous and the trend in some respect is is led by people who are hungry for power. That doesn't mean uh, that, uh, that the other side is not hungry for power.
0: Well, and that, and that makes sense. That I do think that the mm. initial framers of the Constitution that they very much had in mind and they actually planned for, and that was that everybody would want power, and they wrote it in that manner. What I feel yeah. they missed or did not foresee was what about those who want power but they don't want responsibility? and with that we have a congress that has abdicated half of their responsibility over to an executive branch
1: well that that is true uh, We also have a political class that the the founders did not envision. They sent everybody home uh, right. uh, and, and and now politician is a profession yep uh, that means you're and there, you know it's it's human nature to be selfish and i think selfishness is necessary uh for progress but it needs to be uh, it needs to be in some way regulated so it is selfish for a bureaucrat to work really hard to keep their job it is selfish for a uh a, a member of congress to work really hard to keep their job well eventually the, the, both the bureaucrats and the and the politician uh, develop a, a distance from real life and they're not serving anymore. I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> I think
0: it's fantastic. Um, or,
1: well, uh, but uh, sad, actually. <laughs> so yeah, of, you know, is, sometimes I develop thoughts while I'm talking. So, yeah.
0: well, you're, you're a brilliant guy. On that happy note, I guess, <laughs> we've determined that the uh, the stakes are dire, bad things are coming, Hopefully we can turn something around and people can find out more about you at JackBarsky.com.
1: And my book, Deep Undercover.
0: Deep Undercover. And I do highly, highly recommend that book. Thank you. And thank you for having an audio because I have difficulty finding time to consume books otherwise. Kind of like yeah. you did with the Bible.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, I, by the way, I, I appreciate this interview. It, it was great. It challenged me intellectually. I'm, I'm just encouraging your listeners to, you know, watch out for me on LinkedIn and Facebook because I got some initiatives going that uh, might, oh, awesome. people might find interesting. I don't want to get too much into detail.
0: Okay. Well, I'll definitely link both of those in the show notes. And hey, thank you so much for coming on.
1: You're very welcome
0: thanks for listening and if you like what you heard please consider subscribing for free and i mean for free it is always free there's no billing anything else you can subscribe in your player of choice which is probably right in your hands or you can go to unstructuredpod.com and there are plenty of links there thank you so much and in the spirit of sharing here's a couple more shows you may want to check out
1: I did not grow up with very much money. Money is energy. Money is something that, that really scares me. Yeah, I had
0: about 60 grand in debt. Money isn't the answer. Somebody should just give me a lot of money.
1: My dream was to be the WWE wrestler, but you realize that your dreams change over the years.
0: Money is a tool. It's a key to a gate. And at the other side of the gate is the things that you really want to do with your life. It's the things that matter most to you. It's pursuing those values that make you ultimately happy. Listen to Inspired Money at inspiredmoney.fm. Hi, I'm Tyson Franklin, the host of It's No Secret with Dr. T, which is a small business and marketing podcast. Each week, I interview business leaders who openly share the secrets to the massive success. It's No Secret with Dr. T will educate, entertain, and inspire you. Check it out. You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can go to my website, TysonFranklin.com.